The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Good morning, listeners in listener land. This is Arnold Stricker of In Tune with Let's see, I think the incomparable. <laughs> Not on assignment. Not on assignment this El- time. Ellie Wharton. Ellie Wharton. Welcome back, Ellie. L- don't forget Chris in there, man. We have Chris Verdesi in, in our studio managing. And he's, he's editing and engineering and, and doing and he's all doing everything. And then we expect him to get on the air. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have much to do. No, he's, he's, yeah, exactly. No, welcome to In Tune, folks. We're a two-hour weekly broadcast which focuses and reflects on issues that impact and connects our community in the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, and justice. So here's a woman that maybe you may know about, maybe you've forgotten, Alice Coachman. Do you know Alice Coachman? At the 1948 London Olympics, Alice Coachman won the high jump for the United States becoming the first black woman to win an Olympic gold medal. When was that? 1948. I almost remember that. (laughs) Almost. King George VI awarded her medal, and subsequently President Harry Truman congratulated her at the White House. She was celebrated in a motorcade that traveled from Atlanta to her hometown of Albany, Georgia. As a child, she was forbidden from training at athletic fields with whites, which forced her to get creative. She would use ropes and sticks as high jumps, running barefoot, And despite these barriers, she was able to be the first black woman to win an Olympic medal and the first black person to receive an endorsement deal. That is fantastic. That's huge. That is unbelievable. If I had gone to the game, she said, and failed, there wouldn't be anyone to follow in my footsteps. It encouraged the rest of the women to work harder and fight harder, she said in uh, 1996. She paved the way for African-American athletes like... Althea Gibson. Wilma Rudolph. Wilma Rudolph. That's right. Evelyn Ashford. That's right. Flo Jo. Oh, that's Florence right. Joyner. Yes, that's right. Uh, Griffin Joyner. Right out of uh, East St. Louis. That would be um, uh, Jackie Joyner Kersey. Jackie Joyner Kersey. Right, mm-hmm. right. So there you go. So folks, there's one person who maybe you were not aware of that you do know now, Alice Coachman. So you can go in before or after lunch, maybe at lunch, and you can ask some of your colleagues that. Do you know about Alice Coachman? And you'll have a little bit more information on that. And you'll make yourself look really smart. That's right. Here's another one. Okay. Margaret Hamilton. Now, that name rings a bell with me. It should. Mankind successfully set foot on the moon in 1969. While history spotlight remains trained on the pivotal men of NASA, there were several women who played an essential role in the Apollo 11 mission. Margaret Hamilton is one of those important women. As the leader of the Software Engineering Division of the MIT Instrumentation Laboratory, contracted by NASA for the Apollo program, she helmed the development of the spacecraft's guidance and navigation system. Her team developed the framework for software engineering, and she worked tirelessly in testing Apollo's software. Thanks to her rigorous testing of the software, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin successfully landed on the moon despite a software override. And in 2003, NASA honored Hamilton with a special award recognizing the value of her software innovations. President Obama in 2016 awarded Hamilton a Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian award. And of course, she was preceded by women like Katherine Johnson and the other great women of Hidden Figures, which we've talked about. And women's contributions have been vital to NASA since its inception. Now, you would never know that. You know, I grew up watching all those space shots, you know, the the Mercury, the Gemini, the Apollo was really, I was fascinated by that stuff. You never saw women. No, not at all. At the control panels, mission control, all you saw were men 
dressed in their, their white short sleeve shirts with their black ties and black pants and their crew cuts. And don't forget they'd have the little pin in their in their um, the, the lapel pocket there. protector. Mm-hmm. Right. Didn't I send you that information on LinkedIn? I think I was sending you some information. No, 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 not the pocket protector. What are you trying to do to me, Chris? <laughs> I wasn't doing that. <laughs> I can't have a flat top anymore. No, I think I was sending you some information um, because I was reading through some articles, and I think I sent you something on the lady uh, in NASA because I was so intrigued by the fact that. Um, you're right that we don't hear about women in, in those fields. Yeah, you said, because she, uh, right, she had a, a building named after her, but she also had, this is a couple of weeks ago we talked about that, she had, she initially had a building named after her. That's right, exactly. So she's had two buildings named after her. I mean, I think that is just so fascinating because as we look at and we think about women, we we really don't think about women in science. And just recently, there was an article where there was a woman in science and she said, we, won't, we really don't want to be thought of as women in science. We're scientists. That's correct. That's Period. A, that's that's kind of like what Bill White, I mentioned this, what he said, I didn't want to be recognized as the first black uh, president of the National League. I just wanted to be recognized as a president of the National League who was really pushing baseball forward and protecting the integrity of the game. So here's another one. You probably know this name, Henrietta Lacks. I have heard that name, yes. Well, Henrietta Lacks, folks, if you don't know her story, very important. Lab-grown human cells are invaluable to medical researchers. They allow scientists to better understand complex cells and theorize about diseases. Well, the first immortal cell of its kind was created in 1951 at Johns Hopkins Hospital, its donor remaining unknown for years, but we know now those cells belong to Henrietta Lacks. She's from Southern Virginia. She was a black, she was a black tobacco farmer who was diagnosed with cervical cancer at 30. Without her knowing, her tumor was sampled, sent to scientists at Johns Hopkins, and much to scientists' surprise, her cells never died. These immortal cells were integral in developing the polio vaccine and were used for cloning, gene mapping, and fertilization yes, for decades. That, that was a thing. Yeah. A- again, the key thing is without her, her knowledge. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. So for decades, the donor of these cells, which were codenamed HeLa, H-E-L-A, remained anonymous. In the 1970s, Henrietta names was her name was revealed, and origins of HeLa, a code for the first two letters in Henrietta and Lacks, became clear. While Henrietta Lacks may no longer be with us, her contribution to science is, is long-lasting. And there is a book about her and also a film starring Oprah. It would be amazing to know how many white people who had received this treatment, would they have rejected it had they known that it came from a black woman? You know, that is an excellent point, especially in light of all, and I call it the nonsense going exactly. on in the world today. I mean, because there are so many things, and you continue to bring this information up and to the forefront, that if we really look at all of the incredible contributions that people of color, women, you know, everybody that looks non-white and non-male, where would this country be? without these contributions. But yet and still, when you look at the the makeup of leadership in Washington and across the country, you still don't see an equal opportunity situation. And there has been so much that has been contributed to this country that we never hear about. That's correct. And I want to... Uh keep reporting on these things. We, we keep talking about these things. So this is, not, again, this is not something new to us. So here's another one. Edmonia Lewis. 
Not a common name. We're talking 1843 to 1907. My goodness. Okay, so I should go back, and I, and I should have listed the dates for the previous people that we talked about. Matter of fact, Henrietta Lacks was 1920 to 1951, okay? So Edmonia Lewis, little is known about the early life of the mid-19th century sculptor Edmonia Lewis, but she was reportedly born on July 14, 1843, although that is up for debate as well. She's considered the first woman sculptor of African-American and Native American heritage. She began her education in 1859 at Oberlin College in Ohio, where she was said to have been quite artistic, particularly in drawing. 1859. That's amazing. During her undergraduate year, she changed her name to Mary Edmonia, which she had been using anyway to sign her sculptures. While at Oberlin, Lewis was wrongly accused of theft and attempted murder. Though she was eventually acquitted, she was prohibited from graduating. Wow. <laughs> you know, it reminds Just, me of the story about the guy picking up trash while black in Oregon. I read that. I tell you the truth, that just made me want to go just flip out. Because it's like, how many different ways can you abuse people of color? And then, it, and then you know what? And then you add another one. Exactly. You know, you just keep you keep doing it and you keep doing it. And it's like, okay, can we can we walk down the street? Can we breathe? Can we do anything? Right. You know, but those are the kinds of things that you look at this country and you say, how did we get to this point? Because there has to be something that in the atmosphere makes it okay. Well, I'm going to mention something after I finish this out. We can talk about that. Because I'm, I'm kind of getting... Not to the end of my rope with some of the nonsense going on, but for lack of better words, I'm, I need to climb back the other direction a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So let me finish up about, uh, about this. So she moved to Boston, and she was mentored by a sculptor, Ed, Edward Brackett. He began to de- develop her artistic style. Uh, her dual ancestry proved to be a source of much inspiration for her, as her early sculptures were me- medallions with portraits of white abolitionists and Civil War heroes. Uh, forever free... 1867 was one of her best works, which drew from the Emancipation Proclamation. In 1876, she completed what is considered by many to be the pinnacle of her career, the death of Cleopatra. This sculpture was went against artistic traditions of the time by portraying a realistic illustration of the event instead of using a sentimental manner. Ah, so no Liz Taylor looking no, Cleopatra. No, no Richard Burton, Cleopatra. Liz Taylor right. kind of uh, ditty on Cleopatra. Yeah. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of Intune. You're listening to KWRH LP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri.